We read from Holy Scripture this morning in the Gospel according to John, and we're going to begin reading in chapter 17, verse 12, which occurs in the upper room and is part of Jesus' prayer, what we call His intercessory prayer. And we begin where we do, because the words of that opening verse, Jesus will quote and show the significance of those words in our text, which is in the following chapter and occurs in the Garden of Gethsemane. So John 17, verse 12. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me, I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And now come I to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me, and the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Kedron, where was a garden, into the which he entered, and his disciples. And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place. For Jesus oft times resorted thither with his disciples. Judas then, having received a band of men, and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. 
Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. As soon then, as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. Then asked he them again, Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. If therefore ye seek me, let these go their way. That the saying might be fulfilled which he spake, Of them which thou gavest me have I lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Then said Jesus unto Peter, Put up thy sword into thy sheath. The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Then the band and the captain and the officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him. We read that far in God's Word. Our text is really verses 3 through 12 of John 8. I'm not going to read that again, but it centers on verse 12. Then the band and the captain and officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, it is fitting that these important events leading to the death of Jesus all occur in a garden. The name of the garden is not mentioned in the passage we read, but even the little children here know it's called the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane. This is a garden that was on a very large hill just east of Jerusalem. And as we read in the passage, just over a brook in a large valley called the Brook Kedron. And that this garden is part of an olive grove. The name Gethsemane literally means the olive press. And this garden, therefore, is not a garden like we might think of, a vegetable garden, or even some sort of formal garden to enjoy the various trees that are planted there, but it's more of an open space, perhaps walled off, secluded, and was in the, in the middle of a large olive grove where they would have processed the olives during the harvest season. And as we read in the passage, a place where Jesus Himself often went. It's fitting because the main event in the garden, as our text shows, is that the Son of Man is 
captured and even bound. And from there, he is led to trial and then to his death. Even the great agony that Jesus suffers in the garden, sweating great drops of blood as he prayed, leads to his capture and being bound there. Jesus in an agony is praying about all these events and praying that if it be possible that cup pass from him. And God, indicating already to Jesus in prayer, makes clear that he will drink that cup by his being bound and led away captive. Fitting also that even the betrayal of Jesus occurs in that garden, and indeed the mob or the band that comes to bind Jesus is even led by the betrayer. Judas knew the place. Judas knew that Jesus was there. And Judas himself leads the mob to Jesus to betray Him, but also to ensure that He is captured, bound, and brought back to His masters. I say these events are fitting because these events that occur in this particular garden, Gethsemane, are all made necessary and all revolve around events that occur in another garden long ago, the Garden of Eden. There, another friend of God who knew that God frequented the garden, betrayed him, allied himself with an ungodly mob armed to death, and therefore, therefore bound himself, was captured himself, and brought under the bondage of sin and death. And it's that very event that requires now Jesus, the Son of God, to be bound in this garden. Consider with me this morning, bound in the garden. We consider, first of all, the fact. To understand the significance of what we read here in the passage, it's very important for us to reflect upon what we know occurs in the garden that night. For indeed, it is a very, very busy night full of events that are captured by the various Gospels. But what is striking about our text is that so many of those events are omitted. And omitted now, not by accident, but omitted deliberately by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. John, in his Gospel record of this event, omits, for example, all of Jesus' prayers. We know from the other accounts that upon leaving the upper room, 
Jesus leads His disciples to Gethsemane. And when He arrives at Gethsemane, He leaves the other disciples in one place and goes off with the three, Peter, James, and John, to pray. And after going off a ways, He even leaves Peter, James, and John to go off by Himself alone to pray, admonishing them to also watch and pray with Him. We know from the other accounts that Jesus prays three times. Each of the times He prays that if it be possible, that this cup pass from Him. And that if not, He would also drink it as God's will. But each of the times after making this prayer, Jesus returns to the three and finds them sleeping. And then after the third time, because it's clear to Jesus that God's will is that He drink this cup, He tells them to take their rest for a time, for the Son of Man is going to be betrayed. And not long after the betrayal happens. That, for example, omission is very striking because we know that in the Gospel of John, John records only events that he himself is an eyewitness to. And John, therefore, is an eyewitness to those prayers of Jesus and his being separated with the others to witness them. But John yet omits them. He's also an eyewitness to a number of other events that he nevertheless omits and leaves to the other Gospels to record. John, for example, omits the traitorous kiss of the betrayer Judas. In fact, if it were not recorded elsewhere, one would get the impression that John is even minimizing somewhat the role of Judas. He records the fact that Judas knew the place. He's identified as the betrayer. And he's one who led the band and then stood with them. But he omits that traitorous kiss. John also omits Jesus' question and rebuke of the mob about taking him as a thief with swords and staves. That's important, that rebuke of Jesus, because it shows their hypocrisy that here they are capturing Jesus as a thief. In other words, what they were doing was even itself illegal, capturing one and leading to a trial at night, which was against Jewish law. Jesus, by that rebuke, indicates their motivation. It's not justice and righteousness, but fear and jealousy. Even what John does record about Peter's defense of Jesus drawing his sword and cutting off the ear of the high priest servant Melchus also omits many 
important details. John omits, for example, Jesus' warning at that occasion that those who take up the sword, the physical sword, to defend Him shall perish by that physical sword. And we might add today, guns and bullets. Jesus gave important instruction there that His kingdom was spiritual and will be defended with spiritual weapons. John omits also the fact that Jesus informs His disciples at that occasion that if He needed it and requested it of the Father, He could receive over twelve legions of angels to defend Himself. Those omissions themselves are quite significant. Jesus there is giving important instruction to the church. And one would think worthy of inclusion in here, but John omits it. It raises the question, of course, why? Why did John, who was clearly an eyewitness to these events, and these events clearly are important because they're included in the other Gospels, why did he omit them? Of course, to ask the question is to ask the question why the Holy Spirit did that. And the answer is this. Because those events are so astounding and themselves worthy of attention that there's danger in this particular text that we overlook the main instruction and the main event that John does record, which is the very binding of Jesus and His capture by the band. And therefore, we look particularly closely at that fact. That fact. That fact is what the Holy Spirit draws our attention to. The band of men comes, we read, armed with clubs and spears, carrying torches and lanterns, enters the garden, led, we read here, by none other than Judas himself. The passage here indicates it's really not accurate to describe them as some sort of unruly mob hastily assembled, nor is it accurate to describe them as soldiers, as if they're Roman soldiers. The passage here makes clear, as well as the others, that these were mainly temple guards. These were men that were hired as their business to guard the temple, to keep the temple worship holy, to keep it from unruly mobs, and to keep out the Gentiles from that holy sanctuary. Those are the ones whom the scribes and the Pharisees send to capture Jesus, led by Judas. We read next that Judas, Jesus then steps forward and asks this question, Whom seek ye? This occurs after the event John omits, namely Judas's approach to Jesus and his kiss of betrayal. John, however, adds that afterwards, Judas steps back and stands with that band, identifying himself clearly now with that band, 
and leaving now the disciples. Jesus, however, did not ask that question, whom seek ye, in order to find out the answer. He knew all things. He knew all things that would come upon Him. He had been praying about those things. He knew them because He is the Son of God. He also knew them because the Father had revealed them unto Him in His own human nature. That's why He could speak often to His disciples about what's going to happen. Even weeks earlier, that soon He would be betrayed, He would be captured, and He would be killed. There are three reasons that Jesus asks that question, Whom seek ye? Number one, Jesus asks that question, it's clear, so that they could condemn themselves with their own mouth. He asks that question so that they could answer and make clear their intention to capture Him and bind Him and return Him to their leaders for trial. Number two, Jesus asks that question to demonstrate His own innocence. It's like asking this, Why are you coming to bind Me? What have I done? What is My crime? And thirdly, Jesus asks that question so that He can respond to them. What happens next is unique to the Gospel of John. When Jesus says, ask that question, and they tell Him whom they seek, Jesus responds by saying, I am He. And immediately, that entire band, including Jesus, falls backward to the ground. To appreciate that, you must imagine the scene. Professional guards with professional weapons, those who are not afraid, coming to capture Jesus, armed with more than enough men, fall backwards. Their swords and their staves and their lanterns and their torches all clattering to the ground at this word of Jesus, I am He. This is not some fanciful story that John comes up with, which is how some explain it. Nor, nor is this to be explained as some sort of accident. As if this entire mob that had walked through the darkness through a valley and up the side of a large hill and through all the obstacles would suddenly together in unison accidentally fall. No, that's clear from the fact that they fell in mass and they fell backwards, losing all their weapons. Jesus then repeats the question and they again respond in kind. We are here to capture Jesus of Nazareth, apparently, as they're picking themselves up from the dust. And Jesus again responds in kind, only this time we read He adds two things that He has told them before, who He is, and secondly, He commands that since they seek Him, Jesus of Nazareth, they must let His disciples go free. Only then, and then only, are they able 
to bind Jesus and lead him off. So that's the fact. The Holy Spirit brings us to and calls our attention to, and therefore we have to ask the question, what's the purpose of all this? Why is this here? Why does Jesus do this? And why does the Holy Spirit in such a unique manner call our attention to it? The purpose of all this in the first place is so that Jesus can demonstrate conclusively that He is indeed the Christ, the Son of God. That's the case with everything found in the Gospel of John. It especially highlights that, but that is especially and uniquely the case here. And that's evident from what it is that causes this mob to fall backwards to the ground. And that was the uttering of Jesus' own claim to be Jehovah God. When Jesus speaks, you see, Jesus does not simply speak any word. In fact, in the original, He does not even say, I am He. But when they say, we're here to seek Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus' response literally is, I am. Now those are the same words that Jesus said earlier to the Pharisees when they doubted He was the Christ. His response was, verily, verily, before Abraham was, I am. And they knew what He meant. They knew He was claiming by that name that He was Jehovah God, the I Am that I Am. And therefore, at that occasion, in John 8, 58, they picked up stones to kill Him. And now, once again, in the garden, Jesus invokes that name. Martin Luther himself notes the significance. He writes, This indicates with certainty who this person is. So that no one thinks this is only a common man, but a person who with seven letters, in the Greek it's seven letters, ego I me, I am, who with seven letters hurls them all back upon the ground including Judas, the traitor. The importance, of course, is that Jesus is demonstrating that as Christ, the Son of God, He is being voluntarily bound. They are not binding Him and capturing Him because of their superior might, because of their clever schemes with a betrayer. He is not being bound because of anything in them, but He is being bound for one reason and one reason only, because He is allowing Himself to be bound. What's the necessity of that? And the answer is, so that His death may be a substitutionary atonement. That is, so that He may die for others. So that He may die for the sins of others. Not now being bound by others, but by voluntarily giving Himself 
to that death and to that sacrifice. As Jesus himself says, again in the book of John, chapter 10, verse 18, No man taketh my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and power to take it up again, which Jesus will show on Easter Sunday. So that's the first purpose in this. The second is so that Jesus can convict the unrighteous reprobates of their wickedness, the wickedness of their crimes, so that His judgment of them, which will be severe, is just. That's the second purpose of Jesus in all this. That's evident when we read that this is done that His Word might be fulfilled. That is, the very Word that He uttered just hours earlier in the upper room. That Word, of course, is this, those that Thou gavest Me I have kept, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. That, of course, is a reference to Judas. And Judas now, as representative of the whole lot of reprobate, ungodly, natural sons of Abraham. And those, of course, who had come to arrest him. So heinous, so wicked, so damnable, is their sin. And so severe the judgment upon them for that sin that they must be absolutely without excuse. That's evident when they simply ignore what happened to them. They knew that they were hurled back. They knew they were hurled back at simply a word from Jesus, I am. They knew they had not stumbled. They knew they hadn't just voluntarily dropped their weapons. And so they knew who this was that they were capturing. And when Jesus repeats His question, they simply get up, dust themselves off, and continue stubbornly in their wickedness. Always you see, the ultimate and extreme form of unbelief is that one refuses to hear the Word of Christ Himself from His own lips. It's one thing to never know Jesus Christ. It's one thing to hear the Word of God or see the Word of God as it's found naturally as the revelation of God in creation. It's an entirely different thing to know who Jesus is, to hear His Word, to hear His claims, to see clearly the presentation of Him as the Lamb of God come to take away the sins of the world and then reject Him. We learn something here about the blindness of sin and the awfulness of a hard heart. There is here the most severe of warnings to us and to anyone who claims to be a member of the church.
who comes and sits at the feet of Jesus Sunday after Sunday, who hears his word and yet rejects him. Luther again takes note of this, and I quote, Here we may learn what an abominable thing an obdurate heart is, that we may learn to abide in the fear of God. They fell themselves, falling to the ground, but they do not recede in their hearts from their intention and evil purpose. These hearts are utter steel and adamant, and the rogue Judas stood with them, obdurate and hard, and falls to the ground with the rest. Yet he is not moved that he should think, man, quit defying him who hurls us all back with one word. Even if heaven and earth were created anew before the eyes of such people, it would avail nothing. There is a third purpose in this event, and that, of course, is to save his own people from the bondage of their own sin and death. And that's why Jesus adds what he does when he makes that quote, of them which thou gavest me have I lost none. We might think that when Jesus gives this quotation, and even quotation of something he said earlier, that Jesus is simply referring to preventing his elect from becoming lost eternally, that he would so cause them to persevere, he would so preserve them in their salvation so that they were not lost in the sense of lost eternally, that is, losing God's favor so that they're damned. Now that's true, of course. Jesus does mean that. That's the idea of the word lost. It refers to someone living in utter darkness who is lost in the vanity and ruin of sin under God's judgment. It can refer in Scripture to someone prior to being saved. Jesus called His people the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. He said He came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and said to seek, He came to seek and save that which is lost. And it can also refer to someone who is born and raised in the truth but rejects it so that they perish eternally. Judas was lost. None of them is lost except the son of perdition. Judas was lost. So that word could be used in a variety of ways. And Jesus did indeed keep His elect disciples from being lost in any eternal sense. He does that by voluntarily giving Himself to be bound and killed by being their substitute. By taking upon them the wrath of God that they Deserve. Jesus is making it clear that He would be bound, that He would be tried, that He would suffer the accursed death so that His disciples did not have to. And that He did so willingly in love for their sake. 
And that's the importance of connecting these words to what Jesus said earlier in His intercessory prayer, specifically about them, my sheep. They know when Jesus prays, He is referring ultimately to them and to all the people of God whom He has chosen everlastingly and who are given to Jesus Christ to save. And yet, that does not completely explain the words of Jesus here and how Jesus fulfilled those words by His response that night. And that the immediate reference of that phrase, that none will be lost, is to those disciples excluding Judas themselves. For we read, He answered that the saying might be fulfilled. And the idea is there, Jesus answered not so that the saying would be fulfilled sometime in the future or throughout the New Testament period, but right then and there. You see, there's also a temporal sense in which Jesus kept them from being lost that night. And the meaning is clear in that second answer of Jesus when He said, I have told you that I am He. If therefore ye seek Me, let these go their way. We need to do justice to that. Twice Jesus made His captors repeat whom they come to arrest. And the point is that each time He is reminding them of their duty, what they are authorized by the Sanhedrin to do, and that is to capture capture Him and Him alone. And therefore, Jesus is saying, let these go. And the point of the passage is that He kept their souls that night from being lost. He kept their souls from being lost by preventing their capture and their trial and what surely would have been their crucifixion. By keeping them from the clutches of this mob, these men that are arresting Him, He keeps His disciples from a spiritual test of their faith that they were not ready to endure. Which they showed even in the garden they were not ready to to endure, though they might take swords and try to defend Jesus. And they're going to show that in only hours. Luther again. The evangelist indicates that in this word Christ spoke of becoming lost. He speaks in a temporal sense. While in John 17, verse 12, the Lord speaks of becoming lost in an eternal sense. This, however, is not a contradiction. For if the disciples had been arrested on that occasion, they would also have been lost in body and soul eternally. That's the point. So what's the significance of all this? Speak now of the blessing, the saving significance of all this. Well, the first is that all who believe in Jesus Christ, all who are given Him and trust in Him are released from their own captivity of sin and death by the capture and being bound of Jesus Christ. You see, indeed, this is related to the bondage to sin and death 
in which we plunged ourselves in that first garden, the Garden of Eden. There's no mistaking that. That there we deserved to suffer eternally under the wrath of God, to perish everlastingly body and soul. But instead, Jesus is bound. That's the exact application of our form for the Lord's Supper which remarkably only mentions two things that occur in the garden and explicitly connects only one to ourselves as such. And I quote, that especially when the weight of our sins and the wrath of God pressed out of him the bloody sweat in the garden where he was bound that we might be freed from our sins. So that, in the first place, is the significance. The others are related to this. Well, what does it mean that one is freed because Jesus is bound? What does that mean? Now certainly, as I'm sure even the children here know, it means in the first place that we are freed from what our sins deserve. That we are freed from the guilt of sin. That we are freed from paying the penalty that we ought otherwise to pay. But that's not the extent of what the Lord's Supper form means when it says that we are freed because He was bound. There is, in the binding of Jesus, a real power to truly free the people of God from the power of sin. And if you ask yourself, now, what does that look like? The answer is, in the first place, that one is freed from the bondage of sin so as to follow Jesus, so as to be faithful unto death, so as to heed Him, to listen to Him, to obey Him. All things that otherwise are impossible. You see, the point is that one cannot claim, nor will one know truly what it is to be freed from the guilt and from the penalty of their sin unless one also knows and experiences being freed from the power of sin. What does that look like? Obedience. Trust. Following after Jesus. There's another sense too that this Word of God, the significance of it is that um, we might persevere to the end. And persevere in the face of many trials and many temptations. We must know that there is no punishing wrath of God. That there is no guilt of sin that we need to endure because Jesus was bound. Because Jesus willingly gave Himself as our substitute. Well, what's the result of that? The answer is that we can endure all else because in none of it is the wrath of God to extract from us what we cannot pay. Nor can there be because Jesus was bound. You see, it's this that underlies the truth that we read in 1 Corinthians 10.13, for example. 
that Jesus will not allow us to be tempted above that which we can endure. There was an example of that that very night. Jesus knew His disciples. Knew those that would not be lost. And He kept them by His own actions from being captured and tried and crucified. We read in 1 Corinthians 10.13, There is no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you, allow you to be tempted above that which ye are able, but will with a temptation also make a way of escape that ye may be able to bear it. You have here an example of the Good Shepherd knowing his sheep, knowing that they are sheep, knowing their propensity and capability to run, to flee, to get themselves lost. But He is bound so that we might be freed, and freed such that we are kept even in trial and temptation. And then finally this, freed so that we may believe in Jesus of Nazareth as the Christ, the Son of God, and especially now to believe His own Word as the prophet of God. Jesus demonstrates here that He and He alone is the prophet of God. Who not only gives that Word, who knows that Word and then speaks that Word as one who alone perfectly knows the will of His Father, but then fulfills His own Word. All other prophets received the Word of God, spoke it, and then God had to fulfill it. But not Jesus. Jesus receives that will, knows that will, and takes on that will to fulfill it, even to His hurt. And thus, He is bound. And why? So that we may never despair of His promise, that we may ever doubt His Word, but rather simply believe in Him. You see, yes, beloved, there is a severe warning to Judas and to the mob exposing their hard, hard heart for which they have only themselves to blame. But there also here is a wonderful word to his believing disciples. You see, could you ever think of a time when Jesus would be more, most perfectly justified in simply abandoning and forsaking his disciples, given up on them, and then say, they deserved it? It was that night, even before he would die on the cross, they're ashamed. They desert him. They cannot even stand being captured. And Jesus protects them. He keeps them. Well, then there's certainly hope, even a certain hope, for all who trust in Him, this Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, who was bound in the garden. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, O Lord, we pray that having our attention brought 
to the word of our Lord Jesus, the great prophet, priest, and king, the one who showed all of that there in the garden, sovereignly directing all things and willingly giving himself as a sacrifice and the great priest, also speaking the word, who speaks to us here this morning to warn us, to exhort us, to demand of us faith, and gives unto us the sure hope of all who believe and trust in him. O Lord, we thank thee for this great word of our Lord and Savior. Amen.